When I was in college, I volunteered teaching uh, third and fourth grade boys in the, in the children's ministry at the church I was attending. It's something I recommend. Uh, we, uh, they, they divided it into boys and girls. I don't think we do that here. But um, anyway, I had uh, a couple of uh, really interesting kids. They were twins named David and Danny. They were always up to something, and in September they had a birthday, and in that church all the students gathered together before they divided into classes, so sang happy birthday, gave these kids a pencil, and it was kind of cool. And then in November they had another birthday. Um, I didn't really notice. Um, okay, they've got a birthday. Um, we sang happy birthday, gave them another set of pencils. And then in, I think, February they yet had another birthday, and by this time I was on to them. And uh, I realized that they were having trouble waiting for their birthday, and so they kind of manipulated things to be able to have more birthdays than normal. Now, that's not always the way that things happen, but we do have a hard time waiting, waiting for Christmas, waiting for birthdays, whatever it is, but we particularly have a hard time waiting when things are challenging in our lives. I talked this week to someone who is in an awful work situation for about a year now. She's been working 60, 70, sometimes more hours a week. Um, the people she's working with at best are tough, at worst are toxic. Months ago, she was promised a transfer. That hasn't happened yet. In fact, this week, she was told that the project she's on may be extended, and she's just not sure she can take it anymore. In June, I talked to a friend of mine from college who has multiple sclerosis. He's known that for about 20 years, and the first 10 or 12 years were not so bad. The next few years were a little bit more challenging, but the last five years, he's lost many of the capabilities that he once had. He's had to retire. They've had to move as a family to get onto one-level living make many other changes because the disease has robbed him of strength and muscle control. And it's hard, really hard. Our conversation I had with an acquaintance from my single days. Um, after Kathy and I got married, he met a girl. They fell in love. And despite the advice of his friends, they were married six months later. And then he began to find out things about her that he hadn't noticed before, character issues that surfaced, things that have made his marriage to her very difficult. But even though he knows those things now and knows that probably he would not have chosen to marry her, he's been committed to stick it out, to do what he can to make the marriage the best that it will be. But he's admitted it will probably never be easy. We're in the midst of a series on the life of King David. And we're at a point in the story when David becomes a fugitive. For about 12 to 15 years, life for David was very challenging. He lived in and around Saul. Several times Saul told him to take his life. But things have, been risen, have risen to another level now, and David is on the run. While Saul has devoted a great deal of his attention as leader of the nation of Israel to trying to eliminate David. The narrator tells us that everyone, um, including King Saul, know that David will one day replace him as king. It's just a matter of time. But in the meantime, David has to play a very dangerous waiting game. Now, a few of us are going to live our lives having... Um, any our lives threatened, but many of us have had to play a waiting game. It might be because of a financial challenge that has meant that we need to count pennies for a long time. Or it's a child making destructive decisions that you can't do anything about. Or chronic health issues that doctor just can't figure out. There are any number of challenges that we all face. Some are public, some are extremely private, that leave us feeling like God has forgotten us. As someone said to me this week, how much longer does God want me to wait? I just don't know that I can take it anymore. And there's nothing at that point that I could say except I'm sorry, I'll pray for you and hope that things will turn around soon, but who knows when that might be. Today our story bridges two chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 23 and 24. It starts on page 413. And twice in this story, or twice in these two chapters, Saul goes after David and almost gets him. 
And it starts in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. Again on page 413, although you can also follow along with the words on the screen. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go down and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered to him, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah we're afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah. For I am about to give the Philistines into your hands. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought the Philistines, inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines, and saved the people of Keilah. Now, at this point, Saul's not yet in the story, but David's other rival, the Philistines, are. And David uh, hears that they've attacked the people of Keilah. And keeping the big picture of Israel's national security in mind, he wonders if he ought to step in and intervene. But instead of rushing into battle, he does in twice here and three other times in the next few verses, it says he inquires of the Lord. David asks God what he ought to do. And each time God answers. And in this case, God says, yes, go and rescue them. Go and save them. And so he does. And I think there's a lesson here for us. And that is that instead of following our instincts and rushing in to do what we think might be right, to at least pause and ask God for wisdom, to inquire of the Lord, to seek God. It seems to me that it's especially important. We often seek God when things are ambiguous or confusing, when we don't know what to do. We're pretty good at asking God for wisdom and guidance. But it's when things seem straightforward that we say, I've got this. And that's when we can often mess things up because we've not sought God and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I was telling someone this week that a few years ago I, I was convicted of the fact that I would sometimes approach a day and think, I, uh, this Day's going to be pretty easy and simple, and that would be often the days that tripped me up. So I've taken to praying through my day before it starts. So when I spend time with God in the morning, I think about every meeting I'm going to have, lunch or breakfast or coffee, um, every big task, and even for in unanticipated interruptions, asking that God would inspire me, that God would give me the wisdom I need in the moment. Well, after the battle's over, David and his men enter the city, um, it's a walled city. It seemed like a great place to be. It seemed like a protected place. But Saul, who has more battle experience, comes to a different conclusion. So in verse 7, it says, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. And he said, God has delivered him into my hands. So David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. So Saul called up his forces for battle to go down to Keilah and besiege David and his men. Now, again, Saul has more experience. What he sees here is an opportunity to surround the city, to corner David, and to starve him out. But, verse 9 says, when David learned that Saul, what Saul was plotting against him, David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. While Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he didn't go down there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but, David, but God did not give David into his hands. So again, Saul thinks he has him cornered. There's a communication link. David finds out about it. 
And um, what Saul's planning to do, he asks God for wisdom several times here, and God's wisdom is, get out of there, run. So he does. And then it says in verse 14 that God did not give David into his, that is, Saul's hands. So in verse 7, Saul thinks he has him, but in verse 14, we're told that God protected David, and it won't be the last time. The lesson here for us is that um, we can, too, find ourselves in dangerous situations. Again, our lives may not be threatened, but it can feel like we're in similar circumstances. And it's hard to understand why God doesn't immediately take us out of danger, why he doesn't immediately intervene. Now, sometimes he does, but sometimes he leaves us there for a season or even longer. David's example here shows us that even when God doesn't take us out of danger, he does protect us, and we can trust him in whatever we're experiencing in the present. So here David is in the middle of the worst of the worst, and he gets a visit from his best friend Jonathan. Now, about three weeks ago, we talked about David and Jonathan's friendship and a powerful scene where they say goodbye, not knowing if they will see each other again. Well, this brief encounter is the only other time that they do see each other, David, uh, Jonathan seeks David out um, because he hears what difficulty David's experiencing. So in verse 16, it says, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. So Jonathan knows things have gotten difficult for David. So he comes to encourage him, to help him find strength in the Lord. You'll notice that Jonathan does nothing here that changes David's circumstances. There's nothing he can do. But he does give him hope for the future. He does remind him that one day he will be king. That his, his father Saul, King Saul, will not be able to harm him. And he says, my dad even knows this. He knows that you will one day be king. Now he also says here that he'll be second to David. That doesn't happen. But the point here is he's encouraging him in the moment by reminding him of this, this reality that one day he too will be king. So Jonathan, again, knows how difficult things have been. He knows that David's going through a challenging set of circumstances. And he does what we should do. And that is to come alongside those that we know are going through difficulties and to encourage them. So if you know a friend or someone, whether it's somebody in your family or in your extended network of friends, who's going through a challenge, you too, like Jonathan, can come alongside that person and encourage them. During this series, we've invited you to be involved in the, prop, uh, the preparation process for these sermons. So we set up an email address, kingdavidideas at gmail.com. We've encouraged you to read the stories in advance and send us ideas and questions and comments and illustrations um, for that. And we've also been discussing these stories in the summer study that we've had on Wednesday evenings. That's finished for the summer, but each week that group has discussed the story about a week and a half in advance and forwarded ideas to me and the others who are teaching so a couple of weeks ago, looking at this story, this story of David and Jonathan, Jonathan coming to David and encouraging him, someone at City Church shared with the group that she had been recently disappointed by something that she had hoped would work out, but it fell through. And a friend came to be with her and said simply, I don't, uh, don't know why this didn't work out, and I know it's sad, but remember, the story isn't over yet, and it wasn't. Her friend came to her just at the right time. And to remind her that God was at work even beyond what she could see in the moment. She said, my friend believed it for me, even when I couldn't believe it myself. Well, the visit from Jonathan was not a lifesaver uh, in, in a literal sense, but a lifesaver emotionally and spiritually. 
But the danger continues, and as it turns out, Saul finds a clan in the area, the Ziphites, who are willing to work with him, to collaborate with him, to help him capture David. Saul is delighted, and in verse 21 says, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who, he is, who has seen him there. Tell me, they tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you, and if he's in the area, I will track him down. So the search continues. In a desert area, Saul begins to close in on David and his men. Verse 26, Saul was going along one side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. So it's really interesting how David's life is spared here. Just when Saul's about to pounce on him, the Philistines attack Israel. Even Saul, in his, his uh, obsession of capturing David, knows that his overall responsibility is to protect the land. So he leaves to go off to uh, fight the Philistines. And we're left with the impression that God uses the Philistines to distract Saul and protect David. And that's sometimes true in our lives as well. There are things that happen where God pulls the strings in ways that we may not have anticipated to, uh, to help out. So we need to learn to trust that God is often at work even when we can't see it. Occasionally I'll hear someone refer to uh, a miracle. They'll say something like, I found a really close parking spot at Target. Not really. I don't think most people think that's a miracle. But um, it might be an unexpected check in the mail when a bill is due. Um, and I'm not prepared today to spend the time that it would take for us to talk about what's a miracle and what's just a coincidence and all of that. But the story, twice in this story, the narrator will pull back the curtain and let us know that what looks like a coincidence on the surface is actually God at work um, in the moment. And I don't know how to sort out all the time what's a miracle, what's not, what's a coincidence, what's not. But what I do know is that when something good happens, we can thank God and recognize that there is often more below the surface than what we see. Years ago, an Anglican bishop was asked by a skeptic um, how he knew that his prayers were answered and how it wasn't perhaps just a bunch of coincidences. Well, the bishop said, I don't rightly know, but I do know that when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. Now, there's another issue that we ought to deal with, something that the folks at the summer study were troubled by, and that is the way that Saul has this tendency to spiritualize things, even when he's about to do something awful. So, for example, in verse 7, when David went to Keilah to hide, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hands. And then in verse 21, he tells the Ziphites, who are about to betray David, he says, God bless you. In other words, Saul's using very spiritual-sounding language, even when he's about to do something evil. So what are we supposed to think? You know, the older I grow, the less I'm impressed with words, um, especially words that aren't backed up by language. So Saul has all the lingo down here, but his life isn't consistent with his words. Now, I know that some of you have been around people who use a lot of God talk, and those of you who are still exploring faith may find that kind of, if not offensive, at least awkward. When I was in high school one time, I was with a bunch of uh, kids from my high school at a pizza hut. We'd ordered a pizza, the pizza was delivered, and one of the kids was goofing around, and he knocked his Coke over, and it landed right in the middle of the pizza, completely soaked the whole thing. And instead of apologizing, he said, praise the Lord. Now, I was just 16, but I thought, praise the Lord? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to praise God for in this particular situation, absolutely nothing. 
Now, most of the sort of God talk that we hear is generally harmless, but not always. In fact, some pious-sounding language doesn't in, in, pious-sounding language doesn't necessarily mean that someone's heart is aligned with God. Sin can have a blinding effect on us so that we can delude ourselves into thinking that God is on our side. I once met with a woman who had abandoned her husband. He'd been on a business trip. She took her kids and moved to a different state. She didn't have a lot of money, so she was able to find an apartment and a church that she had started to attend. Some of the folks there helped her set up house. They provided her with furniture. They helped her find a car. And she said to me, isn't God great? And all I could think of is how she had manipulated some very compassionate people who had no idea what she'd actually done. Chapter 24 opens with Saul and 3,000 of his best men chasing David again. And then comes a very curious story. We're told that in verse 3, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there. Saul went in to relieve himself. All the junior high boys are perked up. Um, <laughs> David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David is presented here with a perfect opportunity to eliminate Saul. And his men even encourage him to take advantage of it. They even spiritualize it. They say, you remember, it's been predicted that one day your enemies will be delivered into your hands. So few in Israel would have questioned David if he had slit Saul's throat. But something holds him back, although he does cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Immediately, though, he regrets what he's done. So in verse 5, it says, Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord, forfeit, or, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, this raises a couple of questions. One is, why didn't Saul just kill David, or David kill Saul? After all, if the tables had been turned, David would for certain be dead. Well, the answer is, is that David believed, as did many in the ancient world, that kings were there by divine right. If you win the election in those days, it must mean that you are God's man. So only God, in David's mind, could take away Saul's kingship. So he's unwilling to do anything to manipulate a transition. Even though he's convinced that, Saul, that Sam, Samuel had predicted one day he'd be king, he knows that's true. He knows his time will come. He refuses to do anything to speed up the process. He will trust God despite the hardship that comes in this time of waiting. And then the second question is, why was it so awful that he cut off a piece of Saul's robe? Now, I've read five or six different opinions this week. They all disagreed with one another. Some of them had convoluted explanations. I don't think we know. Um, but what I do think we know is that David had a sense in his own heart by examining his own conscience, by examining his own motives, that he had done something wrong. So the physical act of cutting off a piece of Saul's robe may not have been a problem, but he knew that there was something. Perhaps he was thinking murderous thoughts, but just doing it in a very benign way. Whatever the reason is, he knew that he had done something with less than pure motives. Now, here David has an opportunity. And so what do we do when we have opportunities, but we have a sense that it's not the right time? What we need to do is to leave the big picture in God's hands. And in this case, David does that and Saul does not. 
When God allows difficulties into our lives, he may not deliver us from them immediately. In fact, he may not even deliver us from them in our lifetime. But he'll never abandon us. He'll provide what we need, and we can trust him in the moment. So David and his men wait. Saul leaves the cave. And then when Saul's a short distance away, David emerges. He calls out to Saul, my lord, the king. And then David bows down to him as a sign of respect. Just summarizing here, he says to Saul, why have you listened to all of those who have said that I intend to harm you? Look at what's just happened. I had an opportunity to take your life, and I didn't. Some have urged me to do so, but I spared your life because I could not, could not do that. Then he shows Saul this bit of the robe that he has cut off, and that must have sent a chill up Saul's spine, realizing how close he came to losing his life. And he continued telling Saul, I've done nothing to harm you, so why are you trying to take my life? I'm not a threat. I will continue to be loyal to you as long as you live. In addition to honoring Saul's position as, as king, what David is doing is something that anticipates advice that Jesus has given us, and that is to love our enemies. One of the favorite expressions that many have of, of Jesus is the idea of loving our enemies, and yet when you really think about it, it's a lot harder than it sounds. How can we love our enemies? Well, one way we need to understand this is that we need to define what we mean by love. Does that mean that we're supposed to feel fond of those who don't like us? To be happy, have happy thoughts every time we hear their names or if we see them along the street? Does it mean saying that someone is nice when they're not actually nice? Well, I don't think it means any of those things. It does mean, though, that we can still wish them the best. Loving people who have nothing lovable about them is hard work, but we can do it by giving those folks to God. Two thoughts have helped me to do this over the years when everything inside of me is screaming no about loving my enemy. The first is we need to realize that one of the things that can happen is loving our enemies can change them. Sometimes love, again, not affection but kindness, can be a catalyst for change. I've even suggested to people that you try to pray for those that you feel like are your enemies. Ask God to bless them. Now, that may not change them, but it will often change you. I once prayed for somebody who I was in conflict with, took everything that I, I, I could muster up to even pray, but I prayed that God would bless them. And I found that my heart toward them was changed, and eventually that conflict was reconciled. The second reason to love our enemies is because that's what God does with us. We're not the most lovable of people, and yet he loves us. If, as Jesus tells us, we're to love others as God himself has loved us, it reminds us that God loves us even when we are are most unlovable. And we can do the same thing for others. If God's love for us is so extravagant, if it's well beyond anything that we deserve, can we not in some small way imitate God's love for us and extend that kind of love to others? Now, once David finished his little speech, it was Saul's turn to speak. He was very emotional. The text even tells us that he wept aloud. Verse 17, Saul begins, You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now there's a lot here. Um, first, Saul admits that David is right. He admits that he has acted sinfully. He acknowledges that David will be the next king, which is really remarkable if you think about everything that Saul's done. He's been obsessed with getting David, and yet he has a moment of clarity. 
Sometimes we know that God has something for us, and yet we experience a delay. What we can do is imitate what David does here, and that is resist the temptation to force the issue. Instead, doing what's right and waiting for God's timing, and trusting him in the, in the meantime with the details. And it's not uncommon for us to experience delays in our lives. There may be something that we know God has for us, whether it's marriage, job, children. It may be a dream that even seems to be in jeopardy. What we need to do is to trust God in the moment, to take refuge in him. Rather than forcing the issue through our own efforts, we can let God vindicate us. We can let God um, work these things out. So here's another King David ideas question about this story, and that is, is Saul really repentant? The reason people ask that question is pretty soon after this, Saul reverts to his normal tendencies and he's after David's skin. So are his tears genuine? Does he really want God to reward David for his kindness? Saul's words seem humble and sincere, so are they? Well, my sense is that David, or Saul, excuse me, really was um, repentant in the moment, but it just didn't stick. It's not uncommon for someone who is doing something destructive to have a moment of clarity and a moment of, of repentance. But it can also be hard to give up a pattern of sin in our lives. In this case, Saul has let jealousy, his desire to hold on to power, become so important to him that he wants to see David eliminated. But in this particular moment, he recognized that what he was doing was wrong. And even though he very quickly reverted to his old habits, I believe that he had a genuine moment of repentance. But what it shows here is how difficult it is to break the pattern of sin in our lives. But we can with God's help. Now that's the story. Long story, couple of chapters. We've had to read a lot of the Bible. But let me just try to summarize it this way. We live in a culture that's a very instant society. There's a global trend of looking for shortcuts to fix whatever problems it is we have. I find that I am extremely impatient. If I click on a website and it takes more than two or three seconds for the website to load, I'll, I'll abandon it. We're all looking for a quick fix, for five easy steps to instant happiness or love or money. We rush to take pills or go to gurus who promise microwave solutions to our problems. But it seldom works. In fact, sometimes in the rush to fix things, we mess things up even more. So let's commit to do something else. In the midst of whatever danger we're facing, let's first seek God. Inquire of the Lord. And even when God doesn't take us out of danger in the moment, let's remember that he will protect us. And if we see someone else who's going through a challenging time, let's come alongside and encourage them. And we learn we can also trust that God may be at work in ways that we can't see below the surface, behind the scenes. Do what we need to do, but leave things in God's hands and resist the temptation to force the issue. Instead, do what's right, wait for God's timing, and trust him in the meantime. So David's stuck in this period of waiting, and as we'll see over the next few weeks, he's going to be struck waiting even longer. But he doesn't get impatient, or at least not on the, in terms of actions. Instead, he trusts that God will bring things to pass in due time. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are many here today who may be waiting in one sense or another for something in their lives to be made right. Father, I pray that we would bring these things to you, that we would trust you, that you will protect us, even if you don't in the moment take us out of whatever danger or difficulty that we're experiencing. Father, help us to be sensitive to others who are going through challenging circumstances, to come alongside and encourage them. May we always remember that you're at work even when we can't see it and that we can leave the big picture in your hands.
And help us, Father, resist the temptation to manipulate things. Yes, we need to do things. There are things we need to do. But there are also times when we need to leave these things in your hands. We pray that in Jesus' name.